Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, there was a man who used to brag that he had cut off the tail of a ferocious man-eating lion with just his pocket knife. And somebody finally asked him, well, if you're so daring, why didn't you cut off his head as well? To which the man replied, well, somebody had already done that. Now, he probably left out that small but very significant part of the story because he didn't want to diminish the admiration that he was seeking. Because, you see, this man knew what we all know, and that is courage merits our admiration. Courage is a timelessly and universally admired virtue. And the virtue of courage has historically held a prominent place in the church. Most of you know that there's a list of seven deadly sins. Even if you can't name them all, you know that such a list exists. What you may not know is that traditionally in the history of the church, there is a corresponding list of seven virtues. There are three theological virtues, and those are faith, hope, and love. And in addition to those three theological virtues, there are four cardinal virtues making up those seven. And the cardinal virtues are justice, wisdom, temperance, also known as moderation, and courage. And so in some contexts, I've dealt with all of the seven deadly sins before, either through preaching or through teaching. And so to counter that a little bit, with Pastor Bob being gone these next three weeks, I want to give some attention to Christian virtue, to cultivating Christian virtue, beginning this morning with this virtue of courage. Now, courage as a virtue is given a particularly prominent place in the history of the church, partly because of what many people have recognized, and that is that all the rest of the virtues depend upon courage for their faithful expression. In other words, justice calls for courage. To exercise faith calls for courage. To show love calls for courage. And so the English writer Samuel Johnson, way back in the 1700s, said this, Courage is reckoned as the greatest of all virtues, because unless a man has that virtue, he has no security for preserving any other. And similarly, more recently, C.S. Lewis wrote this about courage. He said, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. In other words, you're not going to display any virtue when it is met with hostility or opposition unless in that moment you also have the virtue of courage. But even more important than any of these things, courage has been given an elevated status in the history of the church because God often issues a call to courage to his people in the scriptures. We have a frequent call to courage in the scriptures. We see it in God's words to Joshua to be strong and courageous in Joshua chapter 1. We hear it in the words of King Hezekiah to his commanders in 2 Chronicles 32.7 when they were facing the threat of the Assyrians. We can hear it in the frequent New Testament commands to be of good courage. We can detect it actually in the most frequent command in the Bible, which is to fear not, which on the other end of that is to act courageously, fear not, be courageous. And the opposite of courage is soundly condemned in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, 
this list of those who will be excluded from life in the kingdom. This is what we read in Revelation 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Note well what heads this list. The cowardly, those who lack courage. But we also find this call to courage issued to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. And so that's our text for this morning. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can open them to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Again, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And our text can be found on page 99 in those Bibles. But Deuteronomy chapter 31, first six verses this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, as we consider the call to courage and this virtue of courage this morning, there are three questions that I want us to work through. The questions are this, what does courage mean? Secondly, why is courage important? And third, how do we get courage? And so first, why, what does it mean, the explanation of courage? What exactly is courage? Well, the word in verse 6 of our text that's translated courage is from a Hebrew word pronounced amets. Amets is the Hebrew word. And it simply means to be stout, to be bold, to be solid, to be strong. We do find this same word used in Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it's addressed to all of God's people. And so we have to understand that this call to courage is not something that's issued just to leaders, to ministers in the church. It's something that all of God's people are called to, to courage. Now, our English word courage finds its roots in the Latin language. The Latin word courage, which also has at its root the Latin word core, which means heart. Now, late Latin-based languages also can reflect this root in words for heart. For example, if you know Spanish, which is a Latin-based language, the word for heart is corazón, having this root of core in there. But the Latin word courage does not refer to the physical organ of the heart, but rather the internal fortitude, the temperament or the spirit of a person. And we still use the word heart like this on many occasions, where we say things like, uh, someone in the intense battle or competition will say things like, that person shows a lot of heart. 
And this kind of understanding can help explain why some Bible translators opt for the phrase, take heart, when translating a lot of New Testament instances of being courageous, to take heart. But even when we get into the root of the word here for courage, it doesn't tell us exactly what it means. And so we're still left with this question, what does courage mean? Well, one explanation of courage that seems to capture its essence well, particularly for us as Christians, is this. Courage refers to doing what is right. That's what makes it a virtue. Courage refers to doing what is right, but under particular circumstances. Doing what is right in the face of danger. In other words, the threat of pain and loss. And in the face of difficulty, actions that involve obstacles and risk. And facing those things with a resolve to be faithful, even in the face of tremendous pressures, including the feelings of fear. Now, I know you're, some of you want to write this down, but just stop for a second because I want you to hear what I'm going to say now about this explanation of courage. And that is notice in this explanation that courage isn't about feeling no fear. It's not essentially what courage is. People who feel no fear are generally reckless and act stupidly, right? And so courage is not about not having fear. It's about facing our fears and moving forward to do what is right in spite of how we are feeling. We can be afraid and still act in courage because courage is not a feeling. Courage is a virtuous decision to act and to act in righteousness. So when we read the Lord say things like, fear not, or as we read here in our text in verse 6, do not fear or be in dread of them, it is at its most basic level an urge or a command not to act in fear, not to conduct oneself in fear, but rather to act in righteousness and in faithfulness to one's calling and obligations that are before them. Now, it probably deserves emphasis that the more we act in courage, the less feelings of fear we may experience. That may be true. But courage is always going to involve facing danger and difficulty with the resolve to stand our ground, even in the face of loss and risk. Otherwise, those actions wouldn't require courage. If there's no danger or difficulty or need for resolve in the face of pressures, the action doesn't actually need courage. But we almost always need courage. And so that leads us to the second point, and that is why is it important? The exhortation to courage. Why are we confronted so frequently in the Bible with these exhortations to courage? It comes up so frequently. What's the reason for that? Well, the reason that courage is commanded by God so often and why it's such an important and essential virtue for us as Christians is because of this. In a fallen world, the means that are necessary to reach godly ends will regularly involve danger, risk, pain, and difficulty. The path that is needed in order to reach godly ends in a fallen world will regularly involve danger and difficulty, pain and risk. We live in a war zone. We live in a spiritual war zone all of the time where evil is opposed to and hostile to goodness and where righteousness 
will always face opposition, resistance, disapproval, and danger. That's always going to be the case. And so courage is commanded by God so frequently because courage is demanded to live faithfully in a fallen world. It's commanded so regularly because it's demanded to live faithfully in the world. The kingdom of God is always in conflict with the kingdoms of darkness. It's always happening. It's happening right now around us and within us. In fact, it's happening in our text. That's what's going on in our text. God issues a command for his people to enter into the promised land and go to battle against the Canaanites who dwell there. Now, because this wiping out of the Canaanites raises a lot of questions for people, it's important for us to keep a few things in mind here as we move forward. Okay, so I'm going to mention three things as we think about this wiping out of the Canaanites. And the first is this. The Canaanites were destroyed not for their ethnicity. This is not an occasion of genocide, of wiping out a people on the basis of their ethnicity. The Canaanites were not to be destroyed because they were Canaanites. The scriptures repeatedly emphasize in passages like Genesis 15, 16, Leviticus 18, 24, and 25, Deuteronomy 18, 12. You can look those up. They repeatedly emphasize that the Canaanites were to be destroyed because of their wickedness because they were an ungodly, wicked, evil people. And God is using the Israelites as instruments of his just judgment. He's judging them for their sin and for their wickedness. That's the reason. But at the same time, this is also important. Divine mercy and grace was available to any Canaanite who would repent and place his or her faith in Israel's God. Just like Rahab the prostitute in Joshua chapter 2 clearly shows us any Canaanite could repent and put faith in the living God and be saved from that just judgment just like today that's no different than now and the third thing we should probably keep in mind is that the severity of this action should not be minimized it should not be lessened but it should be seen as something that is uniquely tied to this land of promise in the Old Testament this is why the only time the Israelites are given this directive to launch this kind of military action is here, related to the promised land. This is the only time we see that. So the conquest was never to serve as a standard policy for advancing God's kingdom. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't seen that way, and it certainly is not a divinely sanctioned method for church growth today. It's not. I mean, we shouldn't confuse that. Jesus told Peter at the time of his arrest, put away your sword. And that has set the trajectory for the history of the church. That's not the way the kingdom advances. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities and authorities in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm. Our warfare is spiritual, and that warfare is fought with spiritual weapons. But let's be clear, we are all involved in this spiritual warfare where the kingdoms of light are fighting against the kingdoms of darkness, where the kingdom of life is fighting the kingdom of death. And throughout history, that takes different expression. But we're involved in that battle today, that spiritual battle today, all of us. Regardless of what side you're on, you're enveloped in that battle. And if you're on the side of the kingdom of God, that requires courage. That requires courage. Some clear examples of that today would be this. You can't defend the biblical view of human sexuality and marriage if you don't have courage today. You're just not going to do that without courage. You are not going to declare 
with conviction that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, and unbelievers are judged. Those who don't believe in him will be judged. You will not defend that truth if you don't have courage. It takes courage to hold to the truth of the Bible in the face of the potential mocking, ridicule, and persecution that you might experience from classmates, from coworkers, from friends, from peers, from family members. It takes courage. It takes courage to enter into the messiness of the broken lives and broken communities we find ourselves in. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to speak up for the disenfranchised. It takes courage to be a voice for those who have no voice. It takes courage to be in relationships in this world. You're not going to be in relationships if you don't have courage. Our relationships require courage. It takes courage to stay in a relationship that you need to be committed to. And it takes courage to end a relationship that you shouldn't be committed to. It takes courage to stop enabling a loved one and allow him or her to suffer the natural consequences of poor decision-making. That's hard to do. There's difficulty, danger, risk, and pain in that. It takes courage to do what is right in a fallen world, in our relationships. It takes courage to have necessary conversations that are hard. And I would say, I would venture to guess that most of the, instance, the incidences that we face on a weekly, monthly basis in our lives where courage is required, it's in this. It's in having the conversations that we need to have. It takes courage to have a hard conversation. It takes courage to face the risk of offering a word of rebuke or correction. It takes courage to admit that you're wrong and ask somebody for forgiveness. It takes courage to extend forgiveness for someone that has wronged you and hurt you. It takes courage to confess the reality of your sin struggles and ask others to help hold you accountable to acting in righteousness. That takes courage. It takes courage to give financially and sacrificially to the church. That takes courage. It takes courage to walk by faith. It takes courage to love and risk your heart being broken. It takes courage to keep your soft, to keep your heart soft in a cruel world. Leaving it open to being hurt and damaged again. It takes courage to cling to hope and risk being let down and disappointed again and again and again. And sometimes it just takes courage to keep going. In the face of depression, in the face of difficulty, in the face of woundedness, in the face of grief. And that may be where some of you are. It takes courage to do those things. As someone put it, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the resolve at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. For some of you, it took courage just to show up here this morning. But to put it simply, it takes courage to live a godly life in a fallen world. There is no way around that. It takes courage to live a godly life in a fallen world. That's why it's important, and that's why we read the frequent exhortations in Scripture to this. The kingdom of God is a call to courage. And to participate in that kingdom requires courage. The kingdom of God is not for the faint of heart. And there's that phrase again, isn't it? Heart. 
It's not for the faint of heart. It calls for courage. So in light of that, I would just encourage us all to ask ourselves these kind of questions this morning. Is there an area in your life where you are not acting in righteousness because you lack the courage? Is there a conversation that you're not having that needs to be had because you lack courage? Is there a teaching of scripture that you're not holding on to with firm conviction because you lack the courage? Is there a relationship that you have where you are not walking in godliness, where you're compromising godliness because you're lacking courage? Be honest with yourself. Where in your life are you not acting in courage? And when you identify that, you might ask the question, what do I do about that? <laughs> what am I supposed to do about that? If courage is required to live a godly life, how do I get it? And that's the third thing. How do we get courage, the exercise of courage? Well, the first thing to stress about becoming courageous is that courage is a gift of grace. It's something that God gives. And so one of the first steps of becoming courageous is to ask God for courage. We read these words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Notice how that's a gift. God gave that spirit, not of fear. And although Paul doesn't mention the word courage in this verse, he does mention three things in opposition to fear that actually help us understand how we can go about cultivating courage. He mentions three things. Let's take them in reverse order, beginning with self-control. We grow in courage by exercising disciplined self-control to do the right thing, despite the risk, the difficulty, and the fear. We need self-control, often in small moments. Think about what Aristotle said. He said, we become brave by doing brave acts. But those brave acts will ordinarily start small. They'll be the small things, the moment-to-moment -moment things that help us grow in courage when we respond in self-control, disciplined self-control in the face of those instances. Again, they'll probably be small at first, but if we don't learn to exercise courage in the small things, it's highly unlikely we'll ever be able to exercise courage in the harder things. In fact, the more we fail to exercise courage, even in small things, the harder it becomes to ever show courage. That conversation gets harder to have if we wait. Admitting we're wrong and asking for forgiveness becomes harder the more we put it off. We grow in courage by being faithful in those small things, by exercising disciplined self-control to do what is right, day in and day out in the small things. But both self-control and the exercise of courage is actually fueled by the second thing that Paul mentions, and that's love. Love fuels courage. You might be thinking, exactly, what's the relationship between love and courage? Well, courage is fueled by a love that exceeds our fear. Love that exceeds fear. We will exercise courage when we are ultimately committed to and devoted to someone or something more than we're committed to our own personal safety, our comfort, and even our life. Right? We'll exercise courage when we're ultimately more committed to someone or something above our personal comfort, safety, and even our own lives. Someone has said it this way. 
Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. And so for us as Christians, courage flows from the judgment that God and his truth and his kingdom are more important than our fear. And Christian courage also flows from a love for Jesus that is more ultimate than our love for our personal safety, our comfort, and even our love for our own lives. In other words, love conquers fear. It overcomes fear. So we can act in righteousness. I mean, think about it this way. Why does the hero face all kinds of risk and obstacles and danger in order to rescue and find the soulmate? It's because of love. Love that exceeds fear. The first thing that Paul mentions in that verse, in the Timothy verse, is power. This is actually how the Lord encourages the Israelites here in Deuteronomy chapter 31. He encourages the Israelites by reminding them of his power. But just think about that for a second. The word encourage, to infuse with courage, to infuse with heart or hardiness to go forward and do what is right. That's what it means to encourage someone, to come alongside and motivate and inspire toward courage, toward hardiness to do what is right. And the Lord does that here by reminding of the, pe the people of his power for them. We see this in verse 3. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He, he will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. They have his power. We don't have this courage or strength or power in ourselves. Again, it's a gift of grace. But we are emboldened to this when we recognize that his power is at work for us and within us. But we read not only of his power here, but also of his presence. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. And we see this in verse 6 as well. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Now listen, in verse 6, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. And then we read of this promise. He will not leave you or forsake you. God's power, God's presence, God's promises. So, how do we get courage? Well, let me suggest this. A disciplined self-control to do what is right moment by moment that is fueled by a love for God, his kingdom, and his truth that surpasses everything else and trusting in the power, the presence, and promises of God that he gives by his grace. That's where courage comes from. That's how you get courage. I'm going to challenge you to just look in Scripture with this in mind and think about whether this isn't where David got his courage to face, to face Goliath. This is where Daniel's three friends found their courage to face the fiery furnace in Babylon. This is where Peter and Paul found their courage. This is where Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., found their courage. This is where Martin Luther himself, at the time of the Reformation, the 1500s, found his courage. When he was brought before the Roman Catholic Church to recant his writings at the Diet of Worms in 1521. He was called into this, had all of his writings out on a table. Writings that were in direct contradiction to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and the teaching of the gospel at the time. And he, asked, he was asked to recant, and Luther refused. Actually, Luther said, when, when they asked him if these are his writings, he said, yes, those are my writings, and I have many more just like them. Where did Luther find that kind of courage? Let me ask it this way. Let's go back to this. 
explanation of courage. What empowered Luther to do what was right in the face of danger, the threat of pain and loss, and difficulty, actions that involve obstacles and risk, and what gave him the resolve to be faithful in the face of tremendous pressures, including the feelings of fear? Let me suggest this. He found it through disciplined self-control based on the principles of Scripture that he implemented through years of living in his monastery. Luther was a monk where he learned that disciplined self-control to obedience. But it was also fueled by a love for God and his gospel that exceeded even the love that Luther had for his own comfort and his own life. When he refused to recant, he risked his life in that. But he clung to the power and the presence and the promises of God. And that's what allowed Luther to write the hymn that we already sang this morning. A mighty fortress is our God. And he taught us to sing, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. But the definitive portrait of courage is not Martin Luther. The definitive portrait of courage, it's not Rosa Parks. It's not King David. The definitive portrait is Jesus himself, who lived a self-controlled, disciplined life on the basis of the principles of Scripture, moment by moment, without deviation. He never departed from a life of obedience, but fulfilled all righteousness, devoted in love to his father and to others that led him to reject his own comfort, his own safety, and his own life as being ultimate. And he entrusted himself to the power, the presence, and the promises of his father, and in that he went to the cross. But at that cross he would encounter the loss of the father's presence, where the father would forsake him. But Jesus knowingly and courageously entered into that dark and literally God-forsaken place. He exercised courage to do that out of love for you and love for me so that we would never enter into that dark and God-forsaken place. But because he did that, he has secured for us a grace that forgives us for all the times we give in to our fear, all the times we fail to act in righteousness because we lack the courage. The cross affords us and secures for us a grace that forgives us, but also it secures for us a grace that gives us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And it affords us a grace that assures us of the Father's love for us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And turning from Jesus, he turns toward us in favor. And so we have nothing to fear in light of our Father's love for us. We have nothing in this life to fear, not even death itself, because our God is for us. And even when we risk our own life, if that life is taken... We have eternal life and glory ahead. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no loss. And therefore, we can move forward in courage. What have we to fear when the cross of Christ has afforded us the grace that makes us no longer slaves to fear, but children of our Heavenly Father? And that enables us to answer the call to courage in the strength of the one who courageously sought us and bought us and keeps us in this life and forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we hear this call to courage, and yet we often shrink back from acting in righteousness. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have covered our sins, you have atoned for our sins, and that we are not condemned for those sins. And yet, we thank you also for the grace that gives us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love for you and for others and self-control that enables us to grow in courage. Help us to do that as we cultivate Christian virtue for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.